Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from Stephen Cobb on Exonerating Samson. Exonerating Samson. The story of Samson is one of those stories that we are taught from our childhood. It is a story that captures the imagination. The story on its surface contains a flawed hero, tragic love, an epic battle, a femme fatale, and victory and sacrifice. This story is one that is tailor-made for the entertainment industry. It's had multiple TV and movie adaptations to the years, with a theatrical release as recently as 2018. In Sunday school, Samson was presented to me as a man who, while doing great things to the Lord, was also a man that struggled mightily with his pride and lust. And once he was humbled with the loss of his sight and of his strength, the Lord was then able to work through him and achieve a great victory in the temple of Dagon. I believe many share this understanding of the man. As the parent of a teenage child, I can fully appreciate the temptation of using the story of Samson and of his apparent failures as an object lesson in choosing mates and in keeping pride and lust in check. But I no longer believe this narrative fits what the spirit is telling us in the story. I've come to believe that this understanding does a great disservice to Samson and to his legacy. I see him now as a man of great and unwavering faith in the service to the God of Israel. His story begins seemingly like stories of all the other major judges. As it begins, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. We are all well aware of that the people of Israel, they have their spiritual ups and downs to the book of Judges. However, the story of Samson is unique in its introduction. With the introduction to Othniel, we read that the Israelites cried out. With Ehud, again, the Israelites cried out. With Deborah and Barak, the Israelites cried to the Lord. So also with Gideon and with Jephthah. The story of Samson is unique in that the words, the Israelites cried out, are absent. The absence of these words speaks volumes about the spiritual state of Israel. And this spiritual state is demonstrated repeatedly throughout the life of Samson. With this backdrop, the story of Samson unfolds, and I'll summarize it briefly. The story begins with an extended birth narrative. It ends with the words, he grew and the Lord blessed him. At the beginning of his ministry, he chooses a Gentile bride to the dismay of his parents. He slays a lion and doesn't tell his parents. He throws a feast asks a riddle, and loses a wager. He slays 30 men and loots their clothing to pay off his lost wager. Samson's Gentile bride is given to another, and he begins a one-man campaign of destruction against the Philistines. 3,000 men of Judah gather together to capture Samson and hand him over to the Gentiles. Samson single-handedly defeats an army of 1,000 Philistines using the jawbone of a donkey. And after this victory, he judges Israel for 20 years. Later, Samson travels to Gaza where he stays with a prostitute and carries away the gates of the city. The story concludes with Samson falling in love with Delilah and her betrayal. Captured, blinded, 
and mocked. Samson gives himself and sacrificed in the packed temple of Dagon. The story on its surface is of a man surrounded by violence and full of lust. And this lust clouds his judgment and ultimately leads to his destruction. On the surface, his story does not align at all well with how he is presented in Hebrews 11, where he is listed alongside Gideon, Samuel, David, and others as one who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. What is the author of Hebrews seeing that I did not? How is Samson an example of faithfulness if he is as flawed as I was taught? I've been wrestling with this story for a while, and I've had to unlearn what I had been taught about the man, so I could see the man listed in the heroes of faith. Samson's story takes place in a generation that doesn't even cry out in their oppression. They appear to be comfortable with the evil they are doing. They are also comfortable being ruled over by Gentiles rather than by God. Israel is so defeated that even after Samson begins his campaign of destroying the Philistine crops, the Israelites not only fail to rally around him, instead they gather 3,000 men to capture him and turn him over to to their Gentile oppressors. They go so far as to chastise Samson, saying, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? They are in such sad shape that they don't want Samson to upset the status quo of being oppressed. In the ensuing confrontation between Samson and the Philistines, Samson only has God on his side. And make no mistake, God is on his side. As it says, the spirit came powerfully upon him, and he slays 1,000 men with the fresh jawbone of a donkey. This should have been a powerful reminder of Joshua's prophecy that one man of you will chase 1,000, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Is anybody in Israel listening to what the Spirit is shouting through Samson? Later in Samson's story, he carries away the gates of Gaza. After that event, there isn't any mention of Israel taking advantage of the situation, even as they are conspicuously reminded of one of the covenant promises to Abraham, that his offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Where are they? There is one more failure the Israelites hinted at in this story. Delilah is offered a bribe by the Philistine rulers, who each offered to pay her 1,100 pieces of silver to betray Samson. Immediately after the story of Samson, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim, an Israelite, returns 1,100 pieces of silver that he had taken from his mother. Was this Israelite one of the people offering a bribe to Delilah? Does the fact that he has the money and didn't need it mean that Delilah was never paid, but rather killed? It is in the context of this faithless generation that God takes action and does so by raising up Samson and charging him with a task to begin delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samson wasn't going to complete the task of delivering Israel, but he was raised up to get it started. God begins with an angelic visitation to a childless couple, and he announces that Samson will be born to them. This is an echo of the announcement that Isaac will be born to Abraham and Sarah. And further, there are two angelic visitations, first to the mother and then to the father. 
foreshadowing the two visitations to Mary and Joseph. Samson's birth narrative is one of the longest in the scriptures, surpassing Moses, rivaling that of Samuel. He is in a very select group of people, and the narrative concludes with the words, he grew and the Lord blessed him. We may think the phrase, the Lord blessed him, is ubiquitous in the scriptures, but it is used surprisingly sparingly. Its usage in the Old Testament is limited to just five people, Isaac, Joseph, Samson, Obed-Edom, and Job. Samson is in a very select company. If the Spirit is expressing its judgment of Samson's character at the beginning of his ministry with these words, then it is a very different judgment from the judgment I had of him. The Spirit seems to greatly approve of the man. When the angel gave instruction on how to raise Samson, the angel declares that Samson is to be a Nazarite and commands that his mother is not to drink of the fruit of the vine nor eat anything that is unclean and that Samson is to have no razor come upon his head. In the past, I had taken this to mean that Samson was under the three restrictions of the Nazarite vow. The first restriction that is, is that he is not to go near dead bodies. Yet we see him going near dead bodies and using the fresh jawbone of a donkey as a weapon. And the spirit is right there with him when he does it. Further, the law requires him to shave his head if somebody dies suddenly in his presence. However, many people die in his presence while the spirit is empowering him. Yet Samson claims that he never shaved his head. The second restriction is that he shouldn't consume the produce of the vine. Yet we read that the Spirit is moving him to action before and after a feast thrown by Samson, a party where wine is undoubtedly consumed. And the third restriction is that he shouldn't cut his hair. This is the only restriction that the angel made mention of, and is the only restriction that Samson claims to have obeyed. Is the Spirit telling us that Samson gave no heed to two-thirds of the Nazarite vow? and the Spirit was fully engaged with him while doing so? Or is the Spirit telling us that Samson indeed followed the angel's commands until Delilah shaved his hair? I have come to the conclusion that Samson was faithful to the angelic commands until Delilah shaved his hair. He lived his life separated unto God, a Nazarite, not by the taking of a vow, as no vow is recorded, but rather because God raised him up for a special purpose, and he lived his life committed to that purpose. I once held the idea that Samson took his role lightly and that God had to humble him by blinding him and setting him to work grinding grain in a Philistine prison. However, that is not true to the narrative. Nowhere in the story does Samson repent of any of his deeds, nor is he requested to. Quite the contrary, the spirit is present with him throughout the narrative, moving him and empowering him. If we compare the number of times the Spirit comes upon Samson to the rest of the judges, the Spirit comes upon Samson four times, with three of those occurrences described as powerfully. In contrast, the other judges have the Spirit come upon them a total of three times, between them. Among the judges, Samson is by far the judge most closely tied to the Spirit. Is this the mark of a man who takes his role lightly and needs to be humbled? We also see the marks of divine approval as he sets out to marry his Gentile bride. 
while walking through a vineyard, he is set upon by a lion. The spirit comes over Samson and empowers him to slay the lion. And later he is shown a blessing in its dead body where he finds a community of bees and some honey. Just as David could look back on the slaying of both a lion and a bear as a source of courage in his fight with Goliath, so also could Samson look back on the slaying of this lion to take courage for the battles that he must fight. That also demonstrates his approval of Samson in the form of answered prayer. In Samson's story, he calls on God in prayer twice. Both prayers were immediately answered. The first prayer is after the defeat of the Philistines with a jawbone. He asks God for water, and it immediately comes, which harkens back to Moses getting water from the rock. The second prayer is when he is chained in the temple of Dagon, and he prays for strength, and it immediately comes, empowering him to obtain his greatest victory. The testimony of the spirit of the life of Samson from the beginning of his ministry until his final sacrifice is that of divine approval. The first act of Samson in his ministry is finding a Philistine woman and seeking to marry her. For most of my life, I had sided with Samson's parents over his relationship with this woman. Their question resonated with me when they asked, isn't there an acceptable woman among all our people? And must you go to the Philistines to get a wife? However, given the spiritual state of Israel at the time, and that scripture explicitly states that the spirit of the Lord was motivating Samson to action, I now think that Samson's choice in bride might be part of his message. His answers to the questions are, no, there isn't an acceptable woman among all his people. And yes, he must go to the Philistines to get a wife. The various English translations of Samson's interest in this woman do him no favors. For example, the NASB states, she looks good to me, which sounds casual and emphasizes her looks. The ESV states, she is right in my eyes, which accurately translates the Hebrew, but makes us think he is like everybody else in Israel who is said to do whatever is right in their own eyes. The NIV states, she is the right one for me, which sounds childish. However, this is the first act of a spirit-led judge who just a few verses prior it was said that he grew and the Lord blessed him. Given that, which of these interpretations ring true? He chose her based on our looks, and he was doing what was right in his eyes as opposed to God's eyes, or he was indeed acting in accordance with the Spirit, and he knew in faith this is the one God had selected. Previously, I had dismissed this woman as a misguided dalliance by Samson. I had questioned his motivations with this woman. I considered his choice as being fleshly and rebellious. However, this view ignores that the spirit had given its stamp of approval on Samson's choice with these words. This was from the Lord. How could I miss that? It's right there in no uncertain terms. This was from the Lord. I no longer believe that this woman can so easily be dismissed. She is part of Samson's message to Israel. The spirit-led judge of Israel must go to the Gentiles to find his bride. She is not a throwaway character. She was chosen by God. As part of the marriage, Samson throws a feast, 
And he poses a riddle with the wager of 30 sets of clothing against the Philistines answering it. The riddle being, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Previously, I had believed that Samson's riddle was childish, as I wanted Samson to be bound by the rules of fair play. I thought the riddle should be solvable. I now think that viewpoint was mistaken. I don't think there was any way to solve the riddle except to ask Samson. And that's the point. God was using this as an occasion to confront the Philistines. And Samson was acting in accordance with his divinely appointed task. He's there to begin a conflict to free the Israelites. And he is doing so under the prompting of the spirit. The reaction of the Philistines to his riddle tells us about the gravity of what is really happening. They threatened to burn his bride and her father's household. Is such a reaction warranted if everybody believed it was merely about 30 sets of clothing? Their question to the bride provides an explanation of why they react the way they did. Did you invite us here to steal her property? The Hebrew word translated as steal is commonly translated dispossessed throughout the book of Judges. The word is used 10 times in the last half of Judges 1 to describe what the Israelites were supposed to do to the inhabitants of the land. And it is specifically what Samson's tribe, the tribe of Dan, failed to do. The answer to their question is, yes, Samson, with God's help, is intending to do exactly that. God was seeking a confrontation. And Samson is acting in accordance with what God wanted him to do. As the story develops, the Philistines solve the riddle after threatening his wife and her family and forcing her to reveal the answer. To pay what he now owes, Samson goes deep into Philistine territory, kills 30 men, and brings their clothing back as payment. How do we judge Samson and his slaying of the 30 men? Is this bloodless? This is the first public demonstration of power by the Spirit in the story. As it says, the Spirit came powerfully upon him. And the Spirit is right there with Samson as he slays these 30 men. The active participation of the Spirit in this event suggests divine approval and that Samson is aggressively pushing the Lord's agenda. Another apparent failure by Samson is when he journeys deep into Philistine territory and stays at a prostitute's house. Previously, I had understood this as a moral failure of Samson and an example of his lust getting in the way of his task. I'm sure you realize by now, I don't think that way anymore. If we look backwards in Israelite history, this is an unmistakable echo of the second set of spies sent into the land. They stayed with the prostitute Rahab on the walls of Jericho, and their situation shared many of the same elements. They were in enemy territory. The townspeople were on the lookout. They stayed until the middle of the night and then left. I doubt many would criticize the spies for staying with Rahab for shelter as a prelude to the attack on Jericho. Do we grant Samson that same generosity? Samson was in a nearly identical situation as the spies. He was faced with the same problem of discovery as the spies. He needed shelter like the spies. His stay was a prelude to an attack like the spies. And he left in the middle of the night like the spies. If Samson was going to Gaza to gratify the flesh, why would he risk his life to do so? Surely there would be an acceptable prostitute among his own people 
why must he go to the Philistines to find a prostitute? And once again, the English translations don't do Samson any favors. They interpret the Hebrew words for Samson going in with her as a euphemism for sex. For example, the NIV has, he went in to spend the night with her. The NASB states, he had relations with her. The CSB writes, he went to bed with her. A case can certainly be made for these euphemistic translations, as it certainly applies in the case of Judah entering in with Tamar. However, the same Hebrew word is also used with Barak entering the tent of Jael. And similarly, with the angel and Samson's mother. It would be completely wrong to apply a sexual connotation in these last two instances. How should Samson's actions be judged in this case? Is it right to condemn Samson based on a euphemistic translation of a Hebrew word? When the Spirit is so clearly reminding us of what happened in Jericho, consider the outcome. Samson rises up and carries away the gates of Nehemi city, an obvious reminder of one of the covenant promises to Abraham. Given the outcome, I now conclude that he's still going about the task that God raised him to do, rather than taking an occasion to gratify the flesh. The story of Samson wraps up with him falling in love with Delilah, the invariably vilified femme fatale. In the story, Delilah pressures Samson to reveal the secret of his strength, and Samson is reluctant to tell her about his hair. Each time she pressures him, he seems to want to tell her, and each time he gets closer and closer to telling her the truth. He begins with seven bowstrings, then rope, then tying the seven braids of his hair, before he finally gives up everything to her and tells her about shaving his head. A fool in love and being led away from God, I used to think, as if physical strength was the most important thing about the man. Nowhere in the narrative are we told that Samson is to keep the key to his strength a secret. Is Samson wrong for telling the woman he loved his supposed secret? Notice the tenderness of the relationship. Samson lays across her lap and goes to sleep after finally giving everything up and surrendering fully. She knows immediately. Is this an act of faith by Samson, or is this an act of foolishness? He gives everything up to her, but I never considered the possibility that he gave everything up for her. Genuine love for her, even knowing that betrayal will come. Stand back for a moment and realize that Samson is not the only husband in the book of Judges who is repeatedly betrayed. The story of Samson and Delilah is a microcosm of the whole book of the Judges, with Israel repeatedly turning away and betraying God, and God lovingly bearing the pain and helping them to return to him. As the story goes, Delilah shaves his head, his power leaves him, and he is captured and bound. He is put to work grinding wheat for the Philistines. But the spirit records that his hair begins to regrow and lets us know that God is again present with him. We all know how the story ends. Samson is brought to entertain the Philistines in the temple of Dagon. And as they are celebrating their victory over him, he brings the walls of the temple down, crushing them in a final sacrificial act of service to his God. 
I've come to reevaluate the story of Samson. He's a wonderful character and a shining example of a faithful servant to God. He was called to walk a lonely road to begin delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And he did exactly that throughout his life. He is no longer a flawed hero of the faith to me, but a man who zealously served his God, even when nobody else around him did. And his bride, the unnamed Philistine woman, wasn't a mere dalliance and gratification of the flesh, but a woman chosen by the spirit. And the femme fatale, Delilah, a woman caught in a power struggle. Samson's love for her, while tragic, is typical of God's enduring love for his people. The story of Samson is the story of a man who did what God sent him to do. He began the work to get Israel out of the spiritual mess they didn't even know they were in. And he did so with only God at his side. Samson is not the tarnished hero I grew up with, but rather he is fully worthy of being listed with the other heroes of faith. And especially given the conclusion to the story, where Samson is again all alone, the people of Israel are nowhere to be found. He only has God with him. And in prayer, he offers to give himself in sacrifice to accomplish God's purpose. His enemies think he is forsaken by God. But far from being forsaken, the Lord provides his stamp of approval on the life and work of Samson by enabling his sacrifice. And in Samson's sacrifice, a greater victory was accomplished for the people of God than in all the mighty spirit-led work that Samson had done prior. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this article by Stephen Cobb. For more, you can visit PressOnJournal.org.